Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest edition of the Royal Blue Podcast in association with Sport Pacer. I'm your host Adam Jones today and with me I've got Dave Prentice. How are we Dave? Very well indeed, thank you. Hating the international break as usual, but the end is in sight. Yeah, we are. <laughs> uh, also joined by Gav Buckland today. Gavin, how are we? I'm very well, thank you. Actually, enjoyed the international break for the change. Oh, country. really? Yeah, yeah. Enjoyed oh. the England game. Mm. Mm. Yeah, we'll we'll get on to that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, we're of course also joined by Chris Beasley today. How are we, Bees? I'm good, thanks, Adam. Yeah. Uh, so. The big, biggest bit of news that we're going to talk about for over the last couple of days is that Everton have once again, for the fourth season in a row, frozen their season ticket prices for the uh, upcoming 2019-20 uh, season. And Preno, this is definitely a good sign from the club, isn't it? Once again, yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a massive tick in uh, the, the club's you know, PR box. They've been doing it regularly now. Uh, absolutely nothing bad you can say about it. Um, they appreciate how difficult it can be. Uh, for supporters in one of you know the more economically challenged areas of the country uh, to afford to go to football matches, so they do everything in their power to try and make it as accessible as possible, and it's clearly a ploy that's been successful. When you look at the fact that you know you can't get uh, seats at Goodison Park for home games in the Premier League nowadays, and even you know the uh, domestic cup ties are getting you know so sort of healthy gates. Never actually saw a, an, an attendance figure published for the goal. My friendly, but you know that was in five figures as well. So you know that that was quite decent too. So yeah, they're doing everything very very well when it comes to um, you know so trying to fill Goodison Park and freezing season ticket sales again just before Christmas. What better Christmas present if you can get older one because there's a waiting <laughs> list these days. So no, it's just it, it's great news. I'm delighted to see you. And obviously with the People's Project uh, Stadium consultation starting this week, Gavin, you wanted to. Uh, Make a point about yeah. uh, perhaps Bramley Moors Stadium. Yeah, it's how this is sustainable once you build Bramley Moor when we've got a half a billion pound plus you know, stadium to pay for. Um, you know, somebody's got to pay for it. And if you have a look at you know the season ticket prices we've got at the moment, I know, and I, I'm with Preno on this, by the way. You know, I think it's, it's a good sign, and I think you know, in the days when clubs get stick, I think we're a bit of beacon for uh, keeping tickets cheap. It's just that weather. If you had the same sort of you know, price range at Bramley Moor when you've got a half a billion pound stadium to, to build, it's whether I'm thinking we get through through the gates. I mean, you might, if you think about it, we get in about, I think, about 15 million a year right. on a 40,000 seat stadium uh, tickets. Um, but that's a fairly insignificant part of the club's yeah. turnover these days, isn't but it? But if we, if you, even if you had a 60,000 seat stadium, if you think of doing a match there, if you had the same sort of pricing structure, then 15 million becomes what 22, 25 million. If you throw in a throw in a bit, you know, more for um, you know the high, you know, the high pay, paying seats. And so you're looking at you know maybe say you get 30 million a year income out of you know take a top Bramley more, but the cost of Bramley more is probably going to be you know in terms of the interest on half a billion quid is going to be probably a little bit more than that. 
So what you're and saying, so, the ticket prices may need to go up yeah, significantly. And yeah, and this is the this the to me the challenge for the club with Bramley Moor is a building it, but B is changing the way the club presents itself in terms of the way you know we're interacting with fans. At the moment, it's great; everybody's happy. You know, we get you know Goodson Park filled. Fans get cheap season tickets, but I don't think if we want to if we want to make. Bramley Moore, I don't want to use the phrase cash cow, but if you want it, if you you know if you wanted to, as people say within the club, to help us compete with the uh, you know the the big six, or whatever, then you've got to increase ticket prices. But isn't, isn't the stadium itself um, an attraction? Don't people come in the first season to see the new stadium? Uh, so there's not a, a problem filling it in the I'm first not, season. I've not got a problem. It's not about filling yeah. it. It's the income you generate from it, right? And that that's the thing. Or even with higher price tickets, yeah, when people e- still come. even even. I'm sure they will, but it's it's you've still got like sort Sounds of like a film that building yeah. and they will come. I mean, <laughs> anyway. You know what I mean? It's like it it's all in many ways the capacity issue is not is a sideline here and, and has been. It's how much you're gonna pay for people to 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 come and see you know, see Evan play there. And to me, the challenge for the club is is do you wanna be as we are at the moment, where you know, very fan friendly and we get lots of, you know, well deserved accolades. Or do you want to be like a ruthless top six club and ensure maximise your income off your supporters, and and therefore help Bramley more do its job? And I think that to me is the challenge for the club, moving to Bramley or even more, I would say, than actually building it in the first place. And um, to this week's announcement to me has brought that sharply into focus. Now it's something the club needs to think about. I'm sure they already are. I yeah, mean, they are. Well, yeah, of course. I'm just looking across the park. I mean, yeah, that's the obvious comparison because you know a lot of the currently established top six are based down in London anyway. You know where ticket prices are traditionally far higher. Liverpool have got a new you know stand built there in case you've you know missed that over the last couple of years. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know they're filling it, and their ticket prices are competitive. You know, so compared to Everton's are cheaper, obviously, but you know they're not. Yeah. Prohibitively expensive. They, you know, only they a mile are across the, park. the top ends, and that's the difference in in. I'm not criticising the club here. I'm just saying I'm flagging up that there's a challenge for the club mm. in terms of Bramley Moore. If it wants Bramley Moore to do what they want Bramley Moore to do in terms of generating income and make us commercially more competitive with our rivals, then something's got to give. We mm. can't have it both ways. And, um, you know, in, in 2002-03, our income from Goodison was about 15 million quid, about £750,000 a game, which is about the same as what it is now. Uh, Liverpool's was about at Anfield was twenty eight million, but they had more games that season, so they had about a million. They used to get about a million pound a game at Anfield. Two thousand fifteen sixteen, which is Liverpool's last season at Anfield before they built the main stand, their income was sixty two million pound of Anfield. So they grown that over over the period of fifteen years. Our income we grown it by about three million because mm-hmm. of our because we wanted to keep our funds cheap and. That that's that's the challenge for us at Bramley Moore is do we want to do the Liverpool two thousand and two three, two thousand fifteen, sixteen movements income and charge people all the money mm. and but then lose then have the risk of losing losing seats? Or do you want to keep it as it is at the moment? Keep, you know, fair price for everybody, which I applaud, but then not necessarily maximise your 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 investment. Because half a billion quid is a hell of a lot of money, isn't mm. it? Well, it's an interesting balance, yeah. balancing act, isn't it? Because like, obviously this new stadium is going to cost the club a lot of money, but as Preno says, it's surely going to be an attraction, especially for this generation of fans that have been season ticket holders for 30, 40, yeah. 50 years, maybe. Yeah, um, I've not got the same sort of um, handle on the numbers that um, 
Gavin's got there, but the fact that they're able to um, to freeze the season tickets, like I said, like Dave was saying, it shows the the decreasing importance of actually gate money when it comes to the club's overall finances. I mean, the club still don't have to do this, so yeah, they should be applauded that the fact that they are freezing the prices, but it it is becoming. Um, less important um, as part of the club's overall um, finance package because of um, all the various TV deals and the other ways of the, um, that the, the money comes into the club. But yeah, I think we, we should be getting it excited about this because it were to uh, wait so long for, for Everton even to get this close. We've seen in the past where Everton have fallen flat with previous stadium um, projects. I mean, some were more popular than others. I mean, I myself, I mean, I really wanted King's Dock to happen. I, I wasn't um, pl- pleased about Kirby. I, you know, I mean, I was I was glad when that one didn't happen. But for this, um, for this one to get so close now, it just seems different this time. And there's an optimism that the club seems to be doing things right, and they're, and they're being very diligent at every step that they seem to be taking. Did this not this not saying that you shouldn't do Bramley more? Mm. And and I think there's two other things to to flag up here. Is a with better facilities, people pay more money only for tickets. It's just fact of life, isn't it, really? So there's, there's that aspect to it. And also the fact that Bramley Moore will bring other commercial opportunities, you know, other than like through, through the, you know, people paying the gate money. But what, what I'm flagging up here is is the challenge about how the club wants to, to put the pricing structure mm. at Bramley Moore. Is, and, and if it wants to maximise the income through ticket buying spectators... Then something's got to give. It's got to. You you have a, you may have an an issue where spectators have paid the same ticket price for like six or seven years, and then go to Bramley Moor and say, "But we go, you know, to make this happen, your ticket price needs to go up by a third. Now people might say, "Well, actually, I'll pay that because I'm going to you know spank a new stadium, better sight line, better facilities. Out and it's worth it." But um, it's going to be a difficult balance act for the club about how how. How it sort of, sort of, you know, sort of wants to maximise Bramley Moore's income, which is duty bound, haven't paid, you know, half a billion pounds for it. With as as Dave said quite right at the start, is it's in an economically challenged area, yeah. you know, and and that 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 ultimately is the challenge of the club. And although I'm I'm pleased that obviously t- season ticket prices are frozen, in some respects that doesn't help that discussion. And I think. That the challenge for the club, as I say, going forward next three or four years, and I'm not giving anybody a stick here, I'm just, I'm just playing out through my own head, is if it wants to get Bramley Moore to do what it needs to do, what they want it to do, then it has to be some sort of change. And it'd be, just be interesting to see how that pans out over the next three or four years. Yeah. Well, there we have the Grinch for Christmas. Well, no, I think that's a bit harsh. He's not having a go. It's not a negative thing. Or a brand new stadium that's going to cost you. Well, essentially, yeah, because yeah. it's half a billion quid, isn't it? And this is what people forget: is it's, it's got to be paid for, you know. And I'm not, I'm not being negative about it. I'm just saying it's like if the club want. I think this goes across the board to me. If the club wants to make Bramley more worthwhile and make us compete, it's got to change the way this current culture. Yeah, and and that's that. That's going to be the challenge when you've got spectators who are used to cheap football, quite rightly so, over 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 the past decades. And that, that's going to be uh, an incest one to see how that plays what, out. What, what I think um, we, we've got here is that something that has happened at, at Everton over the last couple of decades. So I know we're going to be talking a bit of nostalgia c- coming up. But Everton have kind of been 
transformed from being winners to a team who don't actually win things, but quite rightly get lauded for a lot of the stuff they do off the pitch. Everton go, uh, Everton almost seems to get so many things right off the pitch. Everton in the community celebrated its 25th anniversary. Amazing impact on the, the community around the, the ground and all of the stuff that they do off the pitch. But on the pitch, it's coincided with a period in the club where they've not actually um, achieved any success. And you just do wonder about that going along with what you were saying, Gavin, is... Do you want to be? A, do you want to be a winner, or do you want to be like some exactly. really nice? Exactly. I mean, I mean, going back to Mercedes, you don't want to be a mu- you know museum piece or whatever it was. Well, something's got to give there, mm. and I think the next three or four years, is, I would say, is I think people are missing that with the, with the building of Bramley Moor is is actually need the culture around the club and the way it interacts with the spectators probably also needs to change, and it, it'll be interesting to see how that that pans out as mm-hmm. I say. Certainly, we'll see how uh, Everton deal with that challenge over the next three or four years. And as Bees has mentioned there, we're going to sp- talk about a bit of nostalgia. I think the nostalgia corner has turned into the majority <laughs> of this podcast. Uh, I, f- I feel like the odd man out this time around. That Preno- always be the case, given your relative youth. Yeah. Compared to, uh, well, so if, when Sam's on the podcast, I feel like I've got, <laughs> yeah. I've got <laughs> someone to relate to. Yeah. But uh, Preno, there's obviously a big anniversary coming up tomorrow, is there? Yeah, it's, it's not... You know, a, a landmark anniversary as such, but just the fact that Fulham have made such an appalling start to this season, uh, four points from 12 games and changed five. their manager. Five, five points. Five points from yeah. 12 games. You sure, yeah? Yeah. Okay, and changed their manager. <laughs> That's right, yeah, because the, uh, there's only two teams in Premier League yeah. history so who've made sure. a worse start uh, to a season after 12 games, one of which was QPR in 2012-13, predictably finished bottom and relegated. One of which was Everton Football Club in 1994-95. They were bottom with four points after 12 games and somehow managed to survive. And they did because despite um, taking a point from an absolutely appalling 0-0 draw at Norwich and somehow scrambling a ridiculously fortunate 1-0 win against West Ham, which took them up to the heady heights of, uh, how's your maths, uh, four plus eight points after 14 games. Um, the board quite rightly decided to sack Mike Walker and bring in Joe Royal. His first game was November the 21st, 1994, a Merseyside derby. Liverpool had just gone third. They'd beaten Chelsea 3-1. Um, Everton was still rock bottom. But Joe Royal had uh, been to watch a, a mini derby a week previously where he rather, you know, bizarrely saw Andy Hinchcliffe and John Eberle playing for Liverpool, uh, Everton Reserves. Restored them to his starting lineup. Everton beat uh, Liverpool 2-0, famous uh, derby match. Duncan Ferguson scored his first goal for the club on that date, uh, then went to Chelsea and won 1-0, then beat Leeds 3-0, and that actually started what I would probably describe as the greatest escape in Premier League history. I mean, there were plenty of other clubs that could uh, say otherwise, but to have four points after 12 games, yeah. eight points after 14 matches, which is a third of the season gone, and survive. And as you mentioned earlier, Chris, it was only the uh, penultimate match of the season when Everton secured safety having um, played pretty much top six results football throughout the uh, rest of the campaign. Incredible achievement by Joe Royal. And whilst everyone will always point to the FA Cup win at the end of that season as being, you know, the highlight, Joe himself wouldn't. He would always say that, no, no, that was the icing on the cake. He says, you know, actually staying in the Premier League is my greatest achievement that season. So it's the 24th anniversary on November the 21st. And one just worth mentioning, I would suggest. So obviously you were, you were reporting it then, kind of, so... What did what did Joe get right that Mike Walker didn't? Mike Walker. Oh, well, no, no. How much time have we got? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try and be kind here. Yeah. Uh, Mike Walker. We, I know history is painting him as an appalling manager. Let's not forget he got a Norwich City team to finish third. 
the previous season that Everton employed him and then famously beat Bayern Munich in a you know UEFA Cup tie. And they did face Everton to someone once um, that season. And beat them 5-1, five one, oh, yeah. Bonnie, you know, yeah. Anthony Coker got four goals. So, you know, he, he was a manager that could create an attractive team, but he was idealistic, you know, he was naive. And uh, the Everton team that he was trying to create, it was just so soft-centred, it was untrue. Uh, Vinny Samways was, you know, his midfield enforcer, if you like, you know, pulling the strings in midfield. Um, who was the guy up front? Jerry, somebody who brought from Scotland, who, uh, you know, sort of briefly on loan, that, you know, sort of failed miserably. It was just a team that on paper had the potential to be quite attractive, but just didn't have enough heart, enough guts, enough steel. Uh, David Burrows was keeping Andy Hinchcliffe out at left back, which was a strange yeah. decision. So Joe Royal came in and he immediately identified that teams were getting at Emerson far too easily. They had to start keeping clean sheets. So he brought in John Eberlin to his midfield, shot that up with Joe, uh, Barry Horn and Joe Parkinson. You know, his infamous dogs of war, which was a phrase he probably later regretted using, but it certainly didn't do any harm psychologically when you were facing teams and they thought they were going to get a good chase in. Uh, couldn't believe Andy Hinchcliffe was kept out of the side. He actually said to him after that reserve game, what are you doing in the reserves? Andy shrugged, never the most self-confident of her characters. He said, you should be in the England squad. Andy started laughing. Two years later, he was. Okay. Uh, so, you know, he brought him in. And Andy was very, very influential in the uh, revival of that team. You know, the crosses and the set pieces he provided yeah. for Duncan Ferguson and Paul Riders. And it surprised me, looking at the team she's earlier for that derby match. Daniel Amakachi started that game. Uh, never really one of Joe's favourites going forward. Uh, but then he quickly, you know, brought Paul Ride out in the RAF as we christened them at the Echo, uh, <laughs> Ride out in Ferguson, because they just thrived on Andy Hinchcliffe's delivery from the flanks. Um, he just created a much more robust team that was difficult to beat. And then when you can take advantage of the aerial presence of Ferguson and Riders, and don't underestimate Duncan Ferguson, the part that the crowd had to play in him, because when he first arrived at Everton on loan, I remember talking to him very, very briefly, and he didn't know I was a journalist, which is why he spoke to me, uh, asking him about his loan deal, saying, um, you know, so do you think if it goes well here, you're on your three-month loan, you might stick around? He just goes, ah, I wouldn't have thought so. He genuinely thought he was going back to Rangers. He was a Rangers boy through and through. But the crowd reaction uh, to that goal against Liverpool, the way which he was like literally carried off the pitch at the end, I think just lit a fire in him. He just thought, wow, you know, these guys love me. What's going on here? And then, you know, he didn't score at Chelsea, but he scored against Leeds in the following game. You know, scored a few more goals. And I think it very, very quickly generated the momentum whereby he realised, wow, you know, so I could be an absolute king here. You know, it became absolutely impossible for Everton not to sign him permanently. And, you know, he played a significant part again in that season. He got injured late on and missed, uh, only just about made the cup final squad. Uh, but certainly until that point played a significant part in Everton staying up. So just Joe Royal, his man management, his ability to spot uh, soft centres and, you know, shore up a team. Just contributed in turning around a team that was relegated if Michael Walker is looking around. Because those are the seasons, not unlike now where like the top clubs take all the points. And so what, you can stay up, can't you? Know, like, you might stay up this season with 30 points, mightn't you? Yeah. Uh, those are the seasons when you had to have 40 points to stay up, wasn't it? Because it was far more closer together, wasn't it, in the middle of the table. So as you say, to go from like four points to, what, four points from 12 games to... But they weren't a bad team. Obviously, yeah. the cup final went on to show a lot of characters, a lot of good players in there. It was just not under the right direction under Mike Walker, like Dave has alluded. Um, just not the the right fit for those set of players and for Everton at, at that time. They weren't like, say, I'd say the 97-98 season, which I think was the poorest Everton squad I can remember. Certainly around that time, the 94 team, a lot of good, strong characters in there. They just needed the right direction, which which uh, Joe Royal brought in. Well, 
that was lovely. <laughs> well, I was only a few months at the time, so I've probably not really got an opinion on that. But one thing that I do have an opinion on is our like last bit of real Everton news for today. Tim Cale has played his last ever game for Australia. Recent nostalgia, that's more like it. Well, yeah, my 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 generation definitely. Like I think I think he defined like my era of Everton growing up yeah. quite quite personally. Like he was just player who always seemed to wear his heart on his sleeve, just seemed passionate just to be pulled on the shirt, not even just when he when he bagged the goal. He can, let's, be, let's be honest, he wasn't exactly the best quality footballer that we've had over yeah. the last few years, but I think he's the only one who's come close to that tight title of club legend. He, he epitomised that that dog of war title, if yeah. you like, that you know Joe Royal created, not through his uh, style of play, because he couldn't tackle a you know, kiss pack as he was, you know, <laughs> His qualities were elsewhere, as you suggested, but his attitude, that never say die attitude, that willingness to, you know, bloody the nose of the big guns. You know, he, he was the guy that would happily go to Man City and uh, put his neck on the line, as he did several times at Stamford Bridge, you know, scored some great goals there. Liverpool, he was an absolute nuisance to Liverpool. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, turned it on when it mattered. We yeah. see it, saw it with the amount of late goals that he scored, and seem to remember. One on New Year's Eve, was it, against Sunderland? Quite a, quite a late header. That was oh, a big turn around. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Everton got absolutely battered up there. I guess a Sunderland team who were awful themselves. Everton had been on a really bad run um, of, of defeats and um, they really needed a result up there. Nigel Martin pulled them out on several occasions and great saves. And like you said, he was right up at the end. Undeserved, but certainly a massive turning mm. point. That, that, that is a hugely underrated goal, Adam Moyes' uh, managerial career. Because we've been awful that season, hadn't we? And we we tailed off, hadn't we, in the old four oh five season. And we were we were near the bottom and I said we took a bit of a pace and then this last minute goal. We pulled things round. And I remember when I don't know if you remember when Dominic King was here, then we played Sunderland two thousand and nine and near the end of the season. And Moyes had had the same number of games before the Sunderland game in two thousand and five as what he'd had from two thousand and five to two thousand and nine. And the big difference in those four years after that. Yeah. Kale goal in New Year's Eve <coughs> in 2005. The next four years for Moyes' record then was fantastic compared to the, the four years before. And that goal was just a, a massive, uh, massive say, I don't know, nobody ever remembers it really. I had some Kale up, I was on, uh, dare I say, LFC TV a couple of years ago. You know what I mean? Dare not say. I know, yeah. Don't bring that onto my podcast. It's actually a story, it relates to this. And we had one of these, there were two other Liverpool fans like, and you had these things, and we pull, pull a paper, piece of paper out of the thing, and there's a question on there. And the, the paper, that, the piece of paper I pulled on had the question says, who do you fear out of your opponent? Who have you feared most out of your opponents on Derby Day? Fear. And, uh, fear, yeah. yeah. And like, I was talking to Liverpool, you could name four, sure. four or five, you know, but straight off the top. You know, last Premier League era stuff, you know. And they just, everybody around Liverpool fans just all said one word, Kale. Yeah. That... Yeah. That he was the only real player that that he feared, and mm. with and good I, cause too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And as Benno yeah. said, he, he. I mean, the good thing about Tim, I think, is this Duncan. Duncan was always good on the big occasions, but on the non-big occasions, could 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 switch off, couldn't yeah, he? Yeah. With, with Tim, you got you got out of him all the time, didn't you? Really. Um, and he was his, his goals. He scored big goals. I mean, Moyes. Like sort of last four or five years was defined, wasn't he, by one nil away wins where Kale scored. Yeah. He had this mad thing, he scored away winners in the Premier League under Moyes on I think ten times, but never scored a Premier League winner at Goodison. Mm. 
Oh, really? Yeah, never scored a Premier League win at Goodson. But 10 away games, you scored Premier League winners, four yeah. or under Moyes. And that just shows you the importance of them in tight games, especially away from home. And absolutely, he's, he's right up there in terms of like the most important players to play for Everton in the Premier League era, usually. Mm-hmm. Well-schooled well at uh, Millwall when it comes to toughness. I remember actually when Everton drew um, Millwall away in the FA Cup, I, I covered that game. And... Uh, it's interesting to see the reception that Kale got back at the um, at the new den. Uh, he was um, warmly applauded all before the game, but as soon as the, the game kicked off, they were booing him. And then yeah. I thought, that's fair enough, actually. Yeah. yeah. But he scored the winners, didn't he? Scored the win against Millwall in the, in the uh, replay, was yeah. it? In the replay, yeah. 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 The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Right, well, I'm sure. Every Everton fan will be wishing him all the best of luck for the future. Uh, we're going to move on to some of your Facebook Q&A questions. I put a post in our Royal Blue Podcast Facebook group. Uh, if you're not a member of that, be sure to join up with that later on. But yeah, put put the question to a few fans and we've got some interesting uh, queries. We'll start with you with this one, Preno. Uh, Paul Hayes says, I'm surprised personally that there's talk of Cenk Tosin to go back to Turkey. I was hoping Marco could bring the best out of him. What are your thoughts? Um, I, I can understand why there's speculation. Um, I think it depends on whether you want Everton to be a genuine top six, you know, sort of challenger, which I think we all do. Mm-hmm. I like Tosin. I think he's a, a good finisher, great attitude, but he's never going to get into a top six, you know, sort of squad stroke, you know, starting eleven. Um, you want a bit more than you know a good finisher with you know okay in the air, okay pace, you know, sort of okay holding the ball up. You want something a bit, you know, sort of more elevated than that. So, you know, for this season, I'd be surprised if he moved on in January, uh, you know, because Everton, you know, we're told don't intend to spend, you know, particularly big in January. Um, it's not always a good market to be shopping into unless there's somebody absolutely standout you can bring in. Uh, so I, I wouldn't expect to see him move on then. But going further forward, you know, looking ahead to next summer, I can understand that, you know, nothing against him at all. I think he's, he's a decent enough player. But I think we're at a position now where we want more than decent. We want, you know, so absolutely, you know, so top six level. And I don't think he's quite at mm. that. Well, Chris, Tosin started the season as Everton's lead striker. It's only the last few weeks that we've seen Richarlison moved into that central role. Do you think there's there is still some way back for Tosin under silver in that sense? There, there is potentially, but whether he'll, he'll do that, I'm not so sure. Because that's the thing. To be fair to Silva, he gave him a chance. He started the season as a starting centre forward, and he was building on what was a decent end to last season when he'd finally got up and running and scored some decent goals. So he's he's been given a chance, but he just doesn't seem to have that um, that mo- mobility up there. Like Dave said, he's, he's he's a decent finisher, but you need that that bit more, especially I think the way that Silva plays. So it, there is a possibility, and I think Silva will be preferred to him. But I know I have my doubts whether he'll do it. Mm. I think the problem is Garvey's never really looked like that twenty-seven million pound striker that we paid for, has he? Now, now I'm with Prano on this. I think he's not like not top six, but I still think there's a role for him between now and the end of the season. I mean, it depends what you wanted Richarlison to do, isn't it? Really, or do you want him to carry on playing up front, or do you still think his best position is wide left? You know, so I still think there's a role. We've got there's a glut of fixes, isn't it, in December, isn't it, in, in January? A lot of games coming think, up, yeah. And I think I suspect you've not seen the last of him, or even though he's not necessarily first choice. And you know, coming into a team that's playing with a bit more confidence than what 
has been playing within his Everton career thus far. You might see it. You might see a different player, perhaps. But he could surprise yeah, us as well. Yeah. That goal against Palace raised my eyebrows. You yeah. know, you know, the first mm. touch was sublime, but it, you know, his touch is generally okay anyway. But at that turn of pace, you yeah. know, I wasn't expecting that from him. So you know, maybe he's improving on the silver. You know, who knows? Yeah. Mm. Well, fingers crossed. Anyway, uh, Stan Frank is next up with the question, and this one, this one. Seems to get Preno a little bit irate before when I mentioned when I mentioned <laughs> it just at the desk. Cumin uh, and Martinez both delivered Europe during their first full season oh, at right. the club. Yeah. Both led to bad second seasons in the league. Should we be rooting against the top six finish to avoid that second year slump and let Marco and Marcel further transform the squad first? So I'll, let, I'll move to you first, Preno. Well, I don't think you should ever lower expectations. You know, I take the point that Stan Frank's making there in the Europa League is you know, a bit of a poison chalice if you do get into that competition it can create difficulties for you the following season but it doesn't always you know so I always reference the season that David Moyes had you know when we got through to uh, the last 16 was it against Fiorentina and still had a good season and finished fifth uh, a run to the League Cup semi-final the same season as well I think yeah, yeah. Um, so you know it, it can be done uh, you know with a decent squad of players so I don't think you should ever lower expectations and you know not aim for as high as you possibly can I'd be delighted if Everton finished in the top six this season and made the Europa League, you know, regardless of what implications that had for the following season. That then becomes a Mark, Marcel Brands and Marco Silva issue to try and manage. Gav, agree? Yeah, I agree. I mean, going back to what I was saying before about um, ticket places, a club has to generate as much income as possible, <laughs> doesn't it, really? So I yeah, can't argue now and say, oh, no, don't want to get in the Europa League. And for the listeners, Gavin isn't an accountant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, so I think, yeah, it has to be. And it's part of the, it's part, getting into Europe is part of the days in the profile of the club as well, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, definitely, definitely agree. And, I mean, that season under Moyes, you know, getting, looking back and the memories again. I mean, we played great while we were in the Europa League, actually, yeah. when we went out is when that season tailed off. Sure. So you can, it can inspire you if you get it right and absolutely no problem with getting into Europe next year. Because you, you just can't turn down them European nights at Goodison, surely, can you? No, that was one of the great missed opportunities, I think, that season for, for Everton. Um, the f- final was in was in Manchester and uh, a very poor um, Rangers side, which was managed by a former Everton manager, Walter Smith, ended up getting the final. So, oh, God, yeah. Um, Against the Zenit St. Petersburg. Who Everton, Everton had been in the beaten. group stage, ah, you know, yeah, albeit yeah. when they didn't go home and away. It was just at Goodison, yeah. but they beat them. Yeah, one. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's a small-time t- small attitude to... Um, to sort of dismiss the the Europa League, it's the sort of thing that you know the likes of Bolton have done in the past, and sort of not taking it seriously. And you wouldn't want Everton to be like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving on. Uh, Pete Everard says, bearing in mind how the season had started, what would you consider to be a success come the end of this campaign? What do we reckon? I go back to what I've said. Every part of the season signs of development that mm-hmm. that we've, we we're, we're a far better team at the end of the season than what we were at the start of the season. You can see a clear line of development both in, in terms of squad numbers and playing style that we can take into ne- next season and then have a better season in, you know, in 2019-20. That's, that's what I want. Maybe finishing the league is really irrelevant. Having said that, I think if we do do that, then we can easily be knocking on the door of top seven. Mm. We wanted to see just uh, quality of football improve, which we're already seeing signs yeah. of. You know, it's chalk and cheese compared to what we're seeing next season, uh, last season. So, you know, if the finishing position is arguably the same or very similar, I would say we're already seeing progress. But 
a cup run. A cup okay, run I was going to say, tremendous. tell you what, a good FA Cup run. I mean, that's so dependent it? on, you know, the draw, clearly. You know, you need luck in the first two or three rounds. You don't want to be drawing Man City away or Arsenal away, mm. whatever, in the fir- third or fourth round. Or Liverpool away. Again. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if, if you can, you know, so negotiate the first, you know, couple of rounds with a fortunate draw, just a good cup run. That just generates momentum, excitement, mm. you know, buzz around the place. So, you know, I'd like to see that this season. Mm. And we've had a couple of questions on uh, the fitness of Adam Ola-Luckman. Obviously, he's pulled out of the England under-21 squad a little bit early. He's come back to Everton. Still yet to be assessed by the club's medical staff, so we'll wait and see the extent of his injury. But presuming he is going to be out for the Cardiff game, we don't know that yet, but if he is, how bad timing is that? Because surely he was in line for a start there, wasn't he? Well, it all depends on Sigurdsson's fitness, doesn't it? But, you know, if Sigurdsson misses out, you know, the obvious slot would be Bernard back in the middle and Luckman, you know, so coming into one of the flanks. And yeah, he's deserved a call-up over the last few weeks. I mean, he's... His attitude has been apparently decent. You know, we don't know what goes on on the training pitch, but, you know, on match days, you know, he looks like he's got the bit between his teeth. He's having a go and uh, he's influenced things whenever he's come on. Um, He was, you know, a significant improvement on what we'd seen when he came on against Chelsea. And, you know, yeah, he would have been in line for a start. So I have to wait with our fingers crossed that, you know, it's not too serious because, yeah, I'd I'd like to see him involved at the weekend. Mm. But Chris, even with, even if Sigurdsson were to be fit, for the weekends, do you think Luckman had a shout of maybe getting in over Theo Walcott? Yeah, definitely. I think I'm showing late on at Chelsea after we were, I was down there like Dave was. And um, I think it's the closest he's been for for a long time. Uh, he had a lovely Maisie dribble down the left t- towards the end. And he did a lot more than either um, Bernard or um, Walcott on, on either flank. So I think that was the closest he'd been to a starting spot for, for, a, for a while now. And it'd be very unfortunate if he was injured. What have you made of Luckman this season so far, Gav? With Chris on this, I think it's a case of him. He needs to play regardless of of who he comes in for. I mean, I think Bernard and Walcott are both. I'm say duo rest, but you know, Luckman should easily replace one of them. It's complicated by you saying about if Sigerson's also unfit, as he toast up front. But mm-hmm. uh, so uh, yeah, I, 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 there's no point buying what's a 12 million fee for the player, and you know, we've, there's obviously been a difficult relationship. And the one time he's shown good form and it's apparent that he wanted a first-team place, not playing him, mm. you know. Yeah, the, the issue for me at the moment is Bernard because we know what quality he has because we've seen it, you know, so in, in significant flashes. But he is still adjusting to the Premier League. He's not up to full match fitness no, yet. Can clearly think, see, you know, he's, he's not at it consistently yet. And so, does Luckman deserve an opportunity to show he can do it consistently ahead of Bernard? You know, maybe he does. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's a tough one for Malcolm Silva to call that. Mm. And then finally, we'll finish off with a question from our very own Sam Carroll, oh. which, which oh, includes no. a little bit of a dig at Preno in it as well. There's a shock. Uh, <laughs> if you were to watch one Everton player from the past that you never got to see live in this current Everton team, who would you choose and why? And he adds a little caveat that he appreciates Preno might have to go back to the 1800s for a player he's never seen like. <laughs> Nurse stitches my side. <laughs> <laughs> really, where do you want to start? Start with the old man in the corner? Right, oh, gosh. Well, my first game was actually Easter Monday 1975. So, you know, I missed out on all of the 69-70 uh, team. So you could pick any of them. The obvious ones, Dixie Dean. You know, you'd say you'd want to go back and see how good he, he was. You know, so in that era... And yes, you know, you, you can't look beyond that, you know, so I would love to go back and, and see, you know, a football match from that era, see him in his absolute prime. But if you're talking more, you know, sort of more recent past, you know, one I just missed out on, 
Got to be Bowley. I mean, I saw Alan Ball play for Southampton. I saw him come back to Goodison as player manager of Blackpool. Uh, never saw him in a Royal Blue shirt. And the way I've seen Evertonians go misty-eyed talking about him. One of my uh, uh, old colleagues here, Phil McNulty, who works for the BBC now, is, um, you know, he's, he's a proper, you know, cynical old hack. And, um, you know, so does his job very, very professionally. But I remember once um, in the tunnel down at Goodison that he adored Bowley. And uh, I think he's only about a year older than me, uh, Phil, but he obviously started going earlier than I did because he started, you know, he saw Bowley in his prime. And uh, I saw him with his notepad out getting Alan Ball's autograph. <laughs> and when I collared him, I said, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Journalists don't behave like that. I don't care. That's Alan Ball. Uh, so, you know, if he was good enough for Phil, I, I would have liked to have seen him in his absolute prime. Lads, any, um, any advance on Alan Ball? I'm with Plano. I, I, my first game was uh, five weeks after Alan Ball left, so uh, oh. I, I did miss out on him. Um, so, yeah, for, for the reasons what Plano said is that, um, like like uh, Tim Kyle, you know, a much better player than Tim Kyle. Well, I think that's probably the understatement of the year, but, <laughs> uh, to be fair, with all due respect. But in big games, his record against Liverpool, especially at Anfield, Actually, he actually won more games at Anfield than he lost. Yeah, which is which is astonishing, and he always scored there as well. So um, I think um, I think he will be have to be the player. See, yeah. when I was a kid, he was the one. Yeah. Yeah, if I could throw in an Atlantic dose about Bordy, because uh, at the turn of the millennium, uh, Everton invited a load of people into the boardroom at Goodison uh, to select Everton giants. Uh, mm. I mean, now there's an Everton giant every year, which I don't like that idea at all. I think it dilutes the idea. But initially, it was one for every decade of the club, you know, literally being around. Uh, one from 1900 to 1910, one from 1910 to 1920, and so forth. And when it got to the 1960s, who did you choose? And it was Alex Young or Alan Ball. And uh, there were Philip Carter was in the room, uh, Brian Labone was in the room, Howard Kendall, um, myself and Ken Rogers representing the Echo, a couple of independent support club representatives. Um, and they were absolutely torn over the 1960s and the vote went to Alex Young and Howard was so angry. He was absolutely appalled and he just couldn't believe it. He goes, I'm not having it. I'm not having it. Alan Ball all day long. And, you know, I take Howard's word over, over most people. So, you know, Ball, anybody that played with him, absolutely adored mm. the fella. Yeah, because I don't know if you've seen him. Uh, Graeme Sheenash was interviewed the other week and I've, I've seen this a couple of times. He said, and Graeme Sheenash, you know, said before on the pod, is. Is, is, is certainly the best midfield British midfield player I've seen and you know probably the best British player I've seen and he was saying the only two players who he couldn't get to while he was playing in midfield was, was the great Zico yeah. playing Flamengo and anything for Brazil and Alan Ball right. he says he couldn't intimidate Alan Ball yeah. whatsoever he says, just take the mickey out, out of you and he said he did it to me if you've done that to Graham Sooners that shows you <laughs> obviously Sooners would have been quite young at the time but yeah. it shows you what a great player Alan Ball was you know yeah. And he'd be my uh, my choice with Plano. These any anything yeah, different? Um, yeah, um, my first game was 1990, so I maddeningly just missed out on the last great Everton teams. But obviously, some of those players were still playing. Neville Southall very much um, still, I would say, at his peak of his powers in 1990. Kevin Ratcliffe was still playing. Uh, Kevin Sheedy too. So I got to see quite a few of those. Not in their absolute pomp, but I did see them. So I'll, I'll actually go along with a player who's just been mentioned as well. Um, just from an intrigue factor, Al- Alex Young, 
and T.G. Jones as well, because mm -hmm. just to think about in, a, in an era when, you know, it was the old leather ball and it was quite different than it is now. Um, just two players who were said to stand out for being very special in the way that they played, especially T.G. Jones as a centre-half at a time when, you know, it was just kick it and hoof it. It's just some of the stories you hear about that, just to see if the legends were true and just how accurate those depictions were. That's mm. a great show. It's actually yeah. the Prince of Centre-Halves, he was called. But okay, well, I'll throw another one in while we're, uh, you know, yeah. diversifying. Lee Roos, I just love that book, Spencer Vine's book about uh, Lee Roos. It was like such an eccentric character in the, uh, the pre-First World War era. A goalkeeper who uh, was the original super keeper that used to come out. He was an amateur. Um, he was a bit of a playboy by all accounts. He um, used to date all the music hall stars of the day. Um, I was so an that's amateur. Season then, Prano. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. amateur. <laughs> amateur. <laughs> insisted, insisted on remaining amateur throughout his career. Uh, once commandeered an express train on his own to bring him back from uh, from uh, London. Um, he only played for Everson very, very briefly, but a genuine war hero as well. Who uh, died on a during the uh, the killing fields of the Somme. Uh, actually running at the Germans, uh, you know, so throwing hand grenades at enemy trenches. Uh, but if anybody hasn't read that, I can't recommend it highly enough. Spencer Vine's book um, uh, about Lee Roos, absolutely stunning. And just, again, he's, he's a pioneer. So, you know, seeing him in his uh, prime would have been quite lovely. Yeah. I have to say, Neville Southall's mine. For, for, being, for being the age that I am, I'm gutted that I just missed out on seeing Neville Southall live because every time I talk to <laughs> anybody about Everton, about any sort of goalkeeper, the... the the, the amount of lyrical that gets waxed about Southall. Oh, well, you missed like, the trees. Yeah. Like, I've, I've seen all I've seen is like the, those little highlight videos that like and just just looked incredible. Yeah, my son embarrassed me once uh, in front of Nev when uh, he'd come to do one of his book signings, and I get on great with Nev, and we have a lot of banter whenever we meet up. And uh, Daniel said to him, <laughs> he said, oh, "My dad thinks that you're the uh, the best player, the best goalkeeper he ever saw." And so never tell. Oh, is that right? <laughs> I says, no, well, no, I didn't. You misheard that. Yeah. But genuinely, he was. I mean, just in that you know eighty-five to nineteen ninety era, there were games where you just knew he wasn't going to be beat. I always remember Ludwig Koga when he went through at Goodison uh, yeah. in that in the semi-final. And I knew never was going to stop it. I just knew he was going to stop it, and he did. The ball just ran loose, and it went to Dieter Honus, who rolled it in. And that game of Coventry. The one nil win. Oh Tony yeah, it was that game. game. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God, how good was he that day? Yeah. He, he stopped everything, including the Brian Kilcline penalty. It was just absolutely just astonishing. Just headed in that game. You could run off the run Greg Downs free like, kick. Yeah, yeah. There was, but he was, he was by far and away the, the best Everton player I've seen by an absolute yeah. million miles. And, and the thing with Nev is, even if players have not played for Everton and maybe got a bit of bias, you say play for him at international level or play all say don't eat that like. He not only was the best goalkeeper that he played with, probably, probably pound for pound the best player that he played with as well. And I think, um, I think he, he was just, he was slightly eccentric as all goalkeepers are. And I remember first watching for the reserves, uh, and it was it was strange isn't it? Jim Arley who signed, signed uh, Jim Arley was the Berry manager who Howard signed from Digest State, didn't he? Jim Arley, and it was, it was quite you know he had an important role because he sold sold Neville to okay. to uh, to Everton, and uh, oh yeah, he was just. He was just magnificent in his, in his prime, and um, and even better that he was slightly eccentric. It looked, it didn't look like he was so unkempt, but on some occasions, but yeah. wow, wow. I mean, nineteen eighty eight was his peak. I went to Chelsea away, West Ham away, and Coventry away, and it was two nil nils, and we won one nil at Coventry. And it is, in, in all three games, it was, it was almost su supernatural. 
Yeah. Well, Alex, Alex you know? Ferguson tried so hard to yeah. sign him. And, yeah. uh, and Gang couldn't. You know, he, uh, largely because Neville thought it was Andy Gray ringing him up, taking the mickey. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, swore down the, uh, the phone to I Alex Ferguson. He said, didn't Kenny want him? I think Kenny made an inquiry, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, so yeah. anybody would have wanted him. Because yeah. he was like, people say about one of the best in the world. And he probably was. You know, I can't think of a better goalkeeper in the world during that he, era. He was the greatest in the world. Yeah. I mean, sadly, yeah. like a number of top Welsh players, never got to play an international tournament to prove that's a wider audience. But, if he'd have played in a World Cup or a European Championships, you would have just seen him for what he was. Well, it's, it's, it's Sod's Law. The one opportunity he had was at 93. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, he had his one, you know, rare sloppy performance for Wales, let the long range shot slip under his body. Yeah. And everyone focuses on the Paul Bowden penalty that was missed. But, you know, he probably was as culpable, you know, as any on that night. Uh, but he was starting to, you know, just... I wouldn't say slide because he never slid. He won an FA Cup in 1995 as well, you know, like 11 years after he won his first FA Cup. And whilst he wasn't his absolute supreme best, he was still, you know, a formidable, you know, sort of barrier then. And I think he might have been one man of the match that day at Wembley. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, he wasn't quite the character but that from 85 to 1990 yeah, was absolutely awesome. Yeah, those Goalkeeping genius is not necessarily a phrase you see very often, but Nev was. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. That's why I'm gutted on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, lads, for joining me. It was an enjoyable podcast. Who said the international break was boring? Eh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, make sure to join us again on Friday when we'll be looking ahead to Everton's return to action against Cardiff. We'll have Marco Silva's press conference on Friday as well, which we'll be able to fully dissect. Uh, make sure to review and subscribe to the Royal Blue podcast. As I said before, join that Facebook group if you haven't already to submit your questions every Tuesday and Friday. And yeah, thank you very much for joining the latest edition of the Royal Blue podcast. You've been listening to the Royal Blue podcast from the Liverpool Echo.